You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. The murders that we're going to discuss happened in the 1940s. However, our story starts in January of 1953, when an employee of the Vancouver Park Board stepped on something while walking through a remote area of Stanley Park. That something turned out to be a skull. For the next 49 years, police were looking for any word, anywhere, on a missing brother and sister. The twists and turns in this story will shock you. Now, 74 years later, the remains of the two children still remain unidentified. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 16 of Gone But Never Forgotten, a famous case here in Canada, The Babes in the Woods. First and foremost, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We really and truly appreciate each and every one of you and hope that you enjoy the show. Just a reminder that we do love to hear from our fans and we have a plethora of ways for you to get in touch with us. On Facebook, we can be found at www.facebook.com forward slash GBNF podcast. On Twitter, we're at GBNF podcast. On Instagram, we are at GBNF pod. By email, we can be reached at GBNFpod at gmail.com. And we're on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash GBNF podcast. Before we get started, for once, let me ask you how you're doing this week, Lance. Wow, okay. Well, I'm doing well. You know, winter is coming here in Canada, and it always is a tough time of year for me. I don't do as well mentally in the winter, and I certainly don't like the weather. But, like I say to anyone else that complains about the weather, we all choose to continue to live here where the cold and the snow is. So I have to take the good with the bad when it comes to being a Canadian. Yeah, I hear that. As you know, I cannot deal very well with the cold. So I too am not totally excited for the next few months. Well, batten down the hatches. Winter is coming and so is the meat and the potatoes of this episode. Let's get down to business on this famous case. On January 14, 1953, a Stanley Park employee came across a patch of leaves while he was patrolling the grounds. This patch of leaves caught his attention immediately because as he walked across them, they made a different and significant crunching sound under his feet. 
He decided to investigate and he dug a bit down under the leaves and brush and what he found definitely caught him off guard. He discovered numerous bones embedded in the ground. This would be the discovery of one of the most famous unsolved murder cases in Canada. As any of us would do, he made the swift decision to notify the authorities of what he had found, and on the next day, investigators showed up to the area close to Prospect Point and began the process of uncovering what lay beneath the leaves and brush, and what they would indeed uncover would be the remains of a very shocking crime. Underneath the layers of leaves, tree branches, dirt, roots, and more, the investigators would unearth first a decomposing fur coat and then the remains of what appeared to be two young children and a hatchet. Investigators also found the remains of two children's aviation caps, decomposing articles of children's clothing, a lunchbox, and a size 7.5 penny loafer women's shoe. Once the investigators realized that they were dealing with a homicide scene, they called in a doctor to the scene. At the scene, he stated that the remains belonged to a young boy and a young girl. The boy he determined was between the ages of 5 and 7, and the girl was between the ages of 7 and 9. It should be noted that this doctor was in fact not a forensic pathologist. That will come into play later. Investigators determined by looking at the layers of brush that had grown over top of the scene that the bodies had in fact been lying in this forest for approximately six years, meaning that the murder itself had likely occurred in or around 1947. We will take a moment to interject here, because for many, myself included, years and such don't always resonate for me. I can read 1947 and 1953 pretty easily, of course, but seeing that I didn't live that long ago, the reality is that I don't have much of an idea of what that time frame was like as far as life and especially as far as technology and as far as police work. What did they have and what didn't they have at their disposal at this time? To answer that question, we will echo some of the comments that have been made over the years by now-retired Unsolved Homicide Unit Detective Brian Honeyburn, who does speak relatively frequently regarding cases including this one, The Babes in the Woods. The report by investigators back in 1953 was a whopping two pages, and while it is still seen as obviously key to the case, Brian does believe that there are facts in this case that may in fact not be accurate based on what you just said. So much has changed over the last 68 years for police. Correct. Brian has said that he has doubts that the time frame of six years is accurate, and he believes in fact that the murders could have taken place much earlier than even the hypothesized 1947. He has explained that nowadays police have so much more at their disposal when it comes to breaking down crimes and crime scenes. Yes. For example, Detective Honeyburn said that if they came across a crime scene such as this today, they would bring in a forensic botanist and other various specialists to analyze all of the brush, bones, and forest floor to better qualify how long ago the murders took place and how long the bodies had been left in the brush. Obviously, these advancements offer a lot of positives in regards to being able to investigate and even close cases, because without an accurate timeline, one does not know where to even begin. 
definitely increasingly difficult, as we will see here today. Let's get back into the case. Obviously, the next steps for police were to appeal to the public and try to find out anything that they possibly could regarding the remains of these two children and the person that killed them. They started out by asking for the public to make them aware of any time that perhaps a woman was seen with a young boy and girl in Stanley Park around 1947. Hundreds of tips poured in. But of course, we're here today, so that means that they were all dead end, sadly. We would be remiss also if we didn't lay out Stanley Park for our listeners. Stanley Park really and truly is to British Columbia what Central Park is to New York. It's a lush and incredibly vast forested area that is actually the third largest urban park in all of North America. From Vancouver.ca, quote, Explore the 400-hectare natural west coast rainforest and enjoy scenic views of water, mountains, sky, and majestic trees along Stanley Park's famous seawall. Discover kilometers of trails, beautiful beaches, local wildlife, great eats, natural, cultural, and historical landmarks, along with many other great adventures. The park offers a wide range of unforgettable experiences for all ages and interests, including Canada's largest aquarium, unquote. Wow, it truly sounds like a, like a beautiful place. It really does. I hope that one day we'll be able to visit there as well. I've heard so many great things about Stanley Park over the years, and it's definitely on my bucket list for places that we need to visit in this great country of ours. Yeah, definitely. We mentioned earlier that the hatchet that was found alongside the bodies was the murder weapon, and this was determined because both skulls had damage that was determined to have been inflicted by said hatchet. One skull impacted by the blade end of the hatchet, and one skull impacted by the hammer end of the hatchet. The woman's shoe that we mentioned was determined to have possibly come off of the murderer's foot while they were fleeing the scene after the act of murder had concluded. Needless to say, as the police appealed for help from the public, the news took this story and ran with it. The discovery of the remains of two children in Stanley Park was the lead story on local, national, and even international news, and the front page on many newspapers. Photographs of the clothing, the hatchet, the shoe, and whatever else could be gathered were spread across North America. All across the continent, missing persons cases were perused and dug through in hopes that perhaps there would be a match to what had been found. Plaster casts of the children's faces were created based on skull shape, but nothing was working in terms of bringing a close to the story, or for that matter, even a lead. Stories and hypotheses of many were, of course, front and center, Many believed that this would be the case of a mother murdering her son and daughter, and the public was longing for answers. Not nearly as much as the homicide detectives, though. Unfortunately, as we've talked about so many times here on the show, we all know that often time is of the essence in cases like this, and obviously detectives were way behind on this one. The killer had at least six years of a head start on them, and that obviously makes a case very cold right from the outset. The case would lay cold for many years, but that would change in 1996. 
That is when Detective Brian Honeyburn with the Vancouver Police Department would take up the case. He was the first detective sergeant in the unsolved provincial homicide unit from the Vancouver Police, and his addition to the case would eventually find something that would change the case forever and leave many scrambling back through old tips anew. Absolutely. With the ability to pick and choose his cases, Brian was drawn to this case because he was born in 1947 and was very familiar with the case from his childhood and obviously from his employment as a police officer. He took on the case because he believed that even though nothing had materialized in the years since the discovery, there were in fact many viable leads that he could attempt to track down. Okay, there had to be someone out there that saw a woman with a young boy and girl going to Stanley Park. Well, you would think so, but also think about when you go to a park. Unless something really stands out that's way out of the ordinary, how much do you remember about the people that you see there? Yeah, I guess that's true, actually. Also, if you simply look at what was found at the scene, perhaps nothing would have looked too out of the ordinary on that day. You have potentially a family of three that would have been dressed for the day, had a lunchbox, so you can hypothesize that they had a lunch, and, well, perhaps only one person in that area knew how sinister that day was actually going to play out. That's true. If this was a mother of two, as many did believe, the brother and sister would probably not look to be in distress of any kind. Well, there is one more thing about that brother and sister. And what's that? Well, prepare yourself. In 1998, Detective Honeyburn would take the remains to Dr. David Sweet, a very prominent and now retired forensic dentist who worked at the University of British Columbia. After extracting DNA from the teeth of the two children, he revealed that the two children were not a male and a female, but rather two boys. In addition to that, the two boys were half-brothers, both sharing DNA from the same mother. Wow, I cannot imagine how groundbreaking that would have been. Earth-shattering, really. For 45 years, the police and investigators had been operating under the impression that they were looking for leads about a boy and a girl, when in fact that was not the case at all. From Detective Honeyburn, quote, It was very damaging, very damaging, because the focus was on a boy and a girl, pretty well at the onset, and they were misidentified by a medical examiner. You've got to remember that there was no DNA back in that time. So I can't put a percentage on how damaging, but it would have had a very severe impact on the investigation, unquote. I cannot even imagine how shocking that would be. Odds are, here he was trying to see if he could possibly find any new data on the victims or the killer, and instead he finds out that everything that they had been pursuing was wrong. That wasn't the only thing that Honeyburn would believe to be wrong from the initial investigation either. As alluded to earlier, there obviously is no way to know when the murders took place, but 1947 was looked at as the time frame, and that was because of the shoes that the boy were we boys were wearing at the time of the murders. The shoes would have been made in China, and as such, it was believed that the shoes were then only on Canadian soil after the end of World War II. However, Honeyburn, through his investigation, did discover that the shoes were in fact available in British Columbia prior to 1947. 
When he took over and uncovered this, it is almost like he was taking on an entirely new case. Yeah, and one that sadly now had an over 45-year head start. Talk about daunting. Yeah, no doubt that makes things a lot harder to solve. However, at least having new information did lead to going back and starting over, which means that old leads could be looked at again if they had to deal with two boys instead of a boy and a girl. For sure. But also with that, think about the fact that the witnesses now had 45 years also to forget everything that they saw and forget what they remembered also. Because clearly they believed that what they'd seen back in the 1940s was irrelevant to the case. With some of the new information and the ability to trace back through tips, there were a few more interesting leads that Honeyburn could at least follow. A few of note were... A woman who stayed at the New Haven Hotel with two boys and then disappeared. A woman who hitchhiked to Stanley Park from Mission with two young boys. The boys were wearing the same style of aviator hat that the two murdered boys were wearing. There was also a woman who lived with her father and two boys by the lighthouse at Prospect Point in Stanley Park. And a woman and a man who had been seen with two children at Stanley Park with a hatchet. The woman and man disappeared into the woods together with the children, but only the two adults emerged from the forest, and the woman had blood on her legs when they returned. But wait, that sounds pretty damning no matter whether you were looking for two boys or a boy or girl. Never mind the fact that the woman had blood on her pants and they had a hatchet. How was this not a lead regardless of what sex the children were? Strangely enough, or perhaps not, because things were always kept close to the vest, especially in murder cases, I couldn't find much else out on this particular lead. What I can tell you, though, is that Honeyburn did follow up with a fine-tooth comb on these and many other leads. Shockingly, though, in each of the situations that we just mentioned, it was found that the children in each case were still indeed alive, or the dates and times did not line up with the actual murders here. There was one case, though, that Honeyburn worked hard to look deeper into, that being in 1944. A woman at that time was reported to be acting deranged and crazy as she ran out of the bushes with no shoes on. With all of the detectives who originally covered the case long retired, and in many cases now deceased themselves, and with Detective Honeyburn also retired, We are left with a case that is on the minds of many, but one that possibly has even more questions today than it had even back when the bodies were discovered in 1953. And obviously anyone still working the case is doing so to bring closure for those two unnamed children, as odds are that whoever committed these murders is likely long deceased and has escaped any kind of justice in regards to this case. But... The case does remain open, and police are hoping that DNA sequencing can at least provide the last names of relatives through sites that do DNA sequencing, and that they can cross-reference the last name back to hopefully find cases of two children who suddenly stopped attending school or something similar. Long shots all around, but I do find it heartwarming that people are still trying to solve what they can about this case. Oh, for sure. This, for me, is proof that if we keep telling these stories and we keep hunting down leads and we keep unsolved cases like this and so many others out there in the public eye, 
There is always the chance that answers can be found and that closure can come for people that were involved. For sure. And in cases like this one, when the case is so incredibly old, the people that need closure may not extend too much beyond the officers that work the case. But even still, closure is important, even to them. Absolutely. One thing that I hope that I never have to encounter is finding a body anywhere. Doesn't matter if it's someone that I know or not. I would imagine that that would be very traumatizing. Yeah, and I'm sure that regardless of how much training anyone has, finding the bodies of two children multiplies that infinitely. This case is of such a vintage that I think for many, it plays just like a story now. But the reality is that this is another case where someone, or some people, took the lives of two very young children who never had a chance to live their lives or even come close, and they did not get brought to justice for what they did. So where are the bodies and the evidence now? I'm glad you asked. Um, The evidence has definitely been around, was left in boxes for many years. Some bones have even been on display at museums in BC. But I definitely was happy to learn that Detective Honeyburn did try to do right by the remains a few years ago, as best he could. He decided to give the two young children a dignified resting place. He cremated most of the bones, leaving crucial parts aside for DNA testing, and released the ashes into the ocean as part of a small ceremony. One can only hope that this brought some closure to the two nameless souls at the center of the story. Truly heartbreaking. What are your thoughts on this case, Julie? Well, any case that involves kids is just sad, especially children that young. But I also am you know, interested and hopeful for this um, case to be solved because technology has come so far and there's lots of proof and evidence that there has been cases that are solved by going back and testing DNA on old evidence. And it comes, it comes out to be really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I mean, even just finding out who the victims are, even if you obviously can't find or prosecute who the killer or killers were, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's definitely a key part of the story. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, and I think it just goes back to what I always say is that, you know, if you have a little piece of information or, or anything that you think is not really a big deal with all the technology now, it could be a big deal. It could be a game changer. Yep, for sure. I mean, if you saw something or I mean at this point probably you know of someone who saw something definitely call Crime Stoppers or call the police in Vancouver to let them know. Yeah definitely. Something that always strikes me is the sheer number of cases that are out there that keep us in business where there is no closure to the story. Mm. The strange thing is that it seemed like in true crime culture we spend a lot of time talking about cases that have been solved, tried, convicted, all of that. But there are so many cases where there are just no answers that you don't even hear about. For every case like this one, there are hundreds of cases where people disappear or are killed and the trail just runs absolutely cold and they become mysteries or folklore or even forgotten. But, like I said, that keeps us at GBNF going. So please, if you know of cases out there that we could cover, let us know. We really and truly want to make sure that people in cases like this remain in the public eye. It's a job for all of us to remember that even though these people are missing or murdered, they remain gone, but but never never forgotten. forgotten.